Welcome to Butterflies and Incantations, a podcast about all things weird and magical. I'm your host, Vanessa. Today's guest, we have none other than Miguel Connor, host of the amazing Aeon by Gnostic Radio podcast at thegodabovegod.com, and author of Voices of Gnosticism and Other Voices of Gnosticism, two great books filled with great information about, well, none other than Gnosticism. And today, we are going to be talking about Gnosticism, Philip K. Dick, and living in a Gnostic world. And perhaps we'll get into a little bit on mystical experiences. Hello. Hey, Vanessa. Can you hear me? Yeah, just fine. Awesome. Awesome. Good, good. Yeah, so uh, thanks for coming on. Um, My pleasure. I, I just want to take a moment to say that it's honestly a great honor to even to be talking to you because your podcast has been a great inspiration to me over the years. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks for being there. Trust me. Your posts blow me away. I love your knowledge and depth and sensitivity. It's awesome. Yeah, I have both your books here, though I'll be honest, I haven't had a chance to sit there and read all, them all <coughs> the way through, That I, though I've jumped fair through them and I enjoy what little I've read. Oh, no problem, no problem. I have a stack of books I need to read. It happens, so thank you so much, and always thanks for the support and being there. Yeah, you should see the size of the stack of books I have yeah. next to me right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I know, I know. So, um, uh, as you know, I've been catching up on my reading of Philip K. Dick's books. <laughs> <laughs> Good choice. So I have a number of notes that I just kind of want to use as bouncing off topics for a discussion. Sure, sure. All right, so what was the first question, Vanessa? Let's have it. <laughs> the uh, quote uh, as as kind of a discussion topic was the quote from Philip K. Dick. Excuse me, Philip K. Dick. <laughs> you are what you think. <clears throat> well, it looks like uh, Phil, is that is that from Vallis? I can't remember if it was or not. It was the the problem with my notes is I write down basically everything that comes to my mind so that I can mm-hmm. keep track of it all because my goodness, the number of things that go through my mind on a, just right. one day. <laughs> right, right. And then you have these days you've got overlap because you've got Valis, you've got Radio Free Albumeth and the Exegesis and they all sort of repeat and sort of bounce off of each other. But uh yeah, I mean, I think Philip K. Dick is talking about the the power of positive thinking, the power as a man thinketh, and all that. So, I'm sure, in his days in the '70s and '60s in California, that was uh, part of the vibe. I mean, uh, and of course, that goes to the whole Hermetic idea that our thoughts are a universe in itself, and as above, so below. So we can. Uh, I don't know about changing reality, but certainly transform our inner realities for the better. And uh, I'm sure Phil probably would have agreed with that uh, saying in the Gospel of Thomas, if you do not bring what is within you, it will kill you. So he always had to be, (laughs) when you talk to his biographers, always had to be expressing himself in one way or another, either through chats, conversations, or in writing. So that's what I would say. What about you? Um, not only that, but I would also say that it reminds me a little bit of what I've been reading li- lately in Buddhist practice of mindfulness, of uh, reminding yourself constantly that, you know, whatever you're d- spending your time thinking about is what's what's going to end up 
while spending a lot of your time. So if you want to, you know, spend your time doing things that are more productive, it's better to, you know, acknowledge that you're spending so much time thinking about these things and they're kind of becoming your reality and instead, you know, letting them acknowledging the thought and letting it pass and letting, you know, whatever you actually want to have as your focus be the focus of your thoughts. Oh, I would agree. And that's, of course, that's a hard one. I mean, the mind in itself, it's a labyrinth. What did Milton say? It can make a heaven out of hell and a hell out of heaven. So that's, it's a hard, those wandering thoughts can create a labyrinth in itself. And uh, you can find going to some very weird places in your mind. And in some way, they do will affect your future because you will oversee, you will miss things that you're supposed to be looking for, opportunities, synchronicities, they're always there, you'll overlook those. And uh, yeah, you just won't be in the the energy of uh, this timeline, past, present, and future. So yeah, I would agree with you on that one. Absolutely, and my notebook is certainly a testament to that. <laughs> the number of <sighs> threads that go nowhere. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that's that's probably what probably connects you to Phil, because at the Gnostic America conference, I was talking to Eric Davis, and uh, a lot of people asking because he worked on the exegesis. He's done so many so much work on it on on Dick, and uh, <clears throat> they were asking me this question, this and that. And he's like, "Look, I can honestly say that getting a linear." history of Philip K. Dick and his ideas is impossible because that's not the way he worked. Everything he did was his notes were a mess. He will t When you talk to him, he tied to past things that had happened or he tied it to mythology and then come back and rehash it. So it's really, even with his 2374 experience, it's very hard to get an app timeline. <clears throat> so I think that's probably the situation. And of course, his exegesis was just all over the place. So it's interesting, but... Uh, Again, uh, like uh, Dick, you, one day you'll just be creating this mythology, and you probably won't even know what time these things happen to you or what point in your life, I'm especially as you add layers of other mythology and experiences, and you tie them back to other places and even beyond the dimensions. So I wouldn't worry too much about that, Vanessa. <laughs> just get it down. Get it down. <laughs> That's definitely where I'm at already. I've kind of lost track of... Pretty much everything. The only aid that I've had is my notebooks and my dream journal and Facebook. <laughs> what I happen to be posting about on Facebook at a specific time. That's wow. the only reason I have any kind of continuity because you are right. It is looping back and constantly mm. self-referencing. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> which, is, which is why I'm sure most blog posts have already become largely incomprehensible <laughs> <laughs> oh it happens but uh yeah you'll get a rhythm so don't worry about that uh, what did dick say the maze is always shifting yeah so the the second thing i have written down is uh more of a thought experiment but what is god afraid of uh good question i mean fear what would God be afraid of? I mean, there was, I think, this uh, Jewish mystic said the joy of God is being defeated by man. So I always wonder maybe the his fear is that he won't be defeated by man. He will continue in the same construct that he somehow created, whether you go with the Kabbalah and the Zinzun that he 
sort of uh, <clears throat> he contracted and the universe spilled out or you go with Gurdjieff and he he created the world but then time trapped him in as a mechanism that he himself had. so I would say yeah, the fear of actually not being defeated the fear that the construct will go and man will not be there to either defeat him or perhaps help him in the redemption if you want to go with uh, kind of Jung or the Talmud kind of view so that's what uh, I would say. What about you? That's a great answer. Uh, what my thoughts was, what it lies outside of what he's created in himself. Oh, I think that's a good one. Yeah, now you're getting into the the Gnostic myth and how he's uh, well. In that one, uh, Yaldabaoth is sort of arrogant because he sees the primal man in the sky, or in some he sees the the silhouette of Sophia, and he wants to create based on that he sees the anthropos or the image of sophia but in his arrogance he still thinks he's creating something unique and special he's just not going to admit that there's this uh, wonder about him because he is god and the only god and he's a jealous god and so forth so that would yeah that would certainly be uh, something to fear the great quote from uh the hypostasis of the archons you are wrong samael <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, like a nagging mom that comes down from heaven and she's wagging her finger at this lion so yeah i think that's it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful it's like you had a uh, it's like a john hughes movie or the brady bunch you've got mom kind of scolding the supreme being <clears throat> like you are blind and you don't get it and like all teenagers, he's still going to rebel. He's still going <laughs> to do his own thing, and he's going to create his own realities regardless of what uh, wisdom tells him. All right, the next thing I have written down to talk about is actually my own experience, because as I was reading through Vallis, very a lot of the stuff that Philip K. Dick describes happening to him actually happened to me, though in mm. slightly different ways. Um his experience with the uh, the ith, ith, how do you pronounce that the ithmus symbol yeah. bouncing him mm -hmm. back to uh, ancient Rome. Right. For me, it was actually a triskelion bouncing me to ancient Babylon. Wow! And, and when did uh, this happen? Um, last... are we gonna trust your notes? <laughs> <laughs> well, this one I have. Enough to go on to say that it was sometime last March, which, interestingly, oh. this March was when I started reading Vallis. Oh. So, <laughs> almost cool. exactly one year later, I started reading Vallis and realizing, hey, somebody else has gone through similar things that I have. Yeah, and then... And it's, uh, oh, yeah, sorry, go yeah, ahead. Tell us, yeah, no, tell us more. Again, I also think of uh, Jacob Bime and seeing the sparks coming out of the pewter dish, so... I guess there is something about these experiences. I myself can't say that I ever had that. Of course, I've had, you know, powerful deja vu and sort of going out of my head and certain instances, but nothing as intense as that. What uh, you three have gone. <clears throat> so, what exactly happened? Well, um, in that, there's. I've actually had two different bouncing back to Babylon experiences. Um, the first one, I was in a temple of some kind. Uh, it was. There wasn't much to it. It was just like kind of tan rock or clay walls, um, a rectangular window, um, and an altar with a golden lion statue on it that I was tending to. And it was only like a 
a minute-long experience, but it was so powerful and so vivid. And I even remember what I was wearing. I was dressed in, like, this very, almost like a belly dancer kind of outfit that was bright cyan. And uh, the bowl, I remember, was a, was of lapis lazuli. And, uh, and I was pouring out a, a libation of some liquid. Um, I think it was wine, probably, because it was about that color. And it was in a lapis lazuli pitcher. And that was the entire experience. And then my second one, I was in presumably some sort of like music hall, and there was all these people just kind of sitting on the floor, and I was like singing. And uh, I looked down to my left, and there was someone playing a a kind of lute thing. And mm-hmm. that was my two experiences. They were very, very vivid. I could like, if I wanted to, I could probably sit down and draw the rooms and draw everything out. Um, I haven't, I should probably do that, (laughs) actually come to think of it, but yeah, they were really vivid experiences. And then the other thing that I had happen is a little bit like what he talks about when, uh, when he said like Valis was talking to him, only for me, it was Inanna that was talking to me and, Mm. uh, she identified her as such. That's how I knew. And, uh, down what she told me to write down uh and the first one actually interestingly enough i was trying to write in uh a sort of cuneiform runes thing that i had i took the phonetics of akkadian cuneiform and like picked the closest thing to english letters and wrote in that and then i realized that was taking way too long so i just started typing the next two <laughs> times that she talked to me but I have wow. that all typed up, and uh, I should probably post that as a blog post as well. Yeah, no, yeah, we need to see that. And th- here's the interesting thing I was just thinking, you know, Phil had his 2374 experience when he uh, sort of the veil lifted, and he was in the second, he was in the, but the first century, he was the Apostle Thomas and so forth, the empire never ended, uh, the hologram had lifted, if you would. But he never, most people never assumed, and he didn't assume it was some sort of uh, near-life, I mean, past-life experience or regression. I don't think you felt that too, did you? It wasn't like you were recalling a past life. It was more of a vision of beyond time and space. To be honest, I'm not even sure. Yeah. (laughs) It didn't come with any kind of warning or explanation, so I'm just left with my experience to draw my own conclusions, I suppose. Uh, Yeah, there you go. That's the whole point. I mean, you have these experiences, and they have lessons, and they're they're valid, so there's not going to be, like, yeah, an instruction manual saying, well, you're actually remembering a past life, or you're actually in another plane being having the goddess talk to you you've got to figure this all out on your own and i guess that's what phil did as well and it's interesting because you're very interested in babylon and samaria and i wonder if it's a millennial thing because i have a son his name is alexander and he's 27 and he's he's decided to go the buddhist path he likes gnosticism a lot but buddhism is what really speaks to him and he can practice it readily here in chicago and other places he's actually in japan right now but he's obsessed with uh, the Babylonian um, mythos. He lo- he's always telling me new insights he's found about Gilgamesh and the myth there and the Sumerian gods did there. So I wonder why this, these a- very ancient myths are speaking to young people today. What do you think? 
Um, I just feel like it's kind of history repeating itself. I feel mm. like the his that the entire universe is cyclical, much like the signs of the zodiac, but on a grander scale. And I think honestly, that was the kind of lesson that I was meant to pull from my Babylon experience. Was that you know here we are again, Babylon, three point <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, those are some powerful motifs, and there is still an amazing uh, mystery about Samaria. It's like you have this civilization just kind of popped out of nowhere, so advanced, so, uh, in, so yeah, so advanced and so sophisticated. So it is a fascinating thing, and of course, Babylon has always attracted people. But you consider yourself a Wiccan, right? I, I, I'm kind of between everything. <laughs> I. <laughs> Um, officially, I consider myself a Gnostic Wiccan um, that follows the Mesopotamian pa pantheon, which is really complicated, and yeah. I might also be adding Buddhism to it. I've been really studying that <laughs> a lot lately, and I've been attending Sangha, and I've really enjoyed it, awesome. so, and it's really helped me, I've, it's really helped me deal, deal with a lot of anxiety issues, so... Mm. Um, yeah. at the end of the day, I think I'm probably doing what you often say on your podcast, writing your own gospel and living your own myth. <laughs> there you go. You got to cut. Yeah, you got to come up with your own prescription. I mean, there's nothing wrong with, as they say, cafeteria religion. I know people say it's new age, but we're all built differently. We all have spirit, different spiritual needs. And that's what Alan Moore said. That's why he draws from all these different things so you got to find what works for you and at certain times in your life certain things may not work like uh, in the same way i think recently the challenges in my life i've started i've like up the ante on my uh, guided meditation and hypnotherapy and i've sort of gone away from more of the sacramental stuff but that's what i need now in my life things will change and i can draw from this place and that place so I don't think, you know, uh, what, what, as John Lennon said, whatever gets you through the night, whatever you need to do to keep the channels of communication and sometimes just keep yourself from going crazy. I know that one from firsthand mm -hmm. experience. There's right. been more than one time that I've questioned my own sanity, mm -hmm. which again draws ties and parallels to Vallis because that's right. talked about. Yeah, what did Dick say? Um, if you know you're crazy, do you stop? Do you cease becoming crazy? <laughs> so I don't. I don't think it's true. But at least that's half the battle. You see, what needs to be done and what are the avenues that you can take to solve some of the problems. So I think. Uh, but again, knowing knowing uh, Phil, that was probably just uh, one of his many uh, powerful rhetorical questions. So. The next thing I have written down is one that I just thought was hilarious, but also thought-provoking, was <laughs> fish cannot carry guns. Oh, yes, I read that, too. That is a good question. I never... That's one of his quotes I sort of read and just sort of... Uh, was he trying to be coy or flippant or something? I mean, there's, there's a saying that if you tell a fish what is water or that it's in the ocean, I'll go... The fish will go... What is water? Because he's in it. He's trapped in it. Now, why bring up the guns? I don't know. Well, actually, I was kind of thinking more along the lines of, like, the uh, Isthmus symbol that, you know, started his whole experience. And, you know, it being 
kind of the sign of the uh, early Christians and the idea of, you know, fish cannot carry guns, as in, you know, a seeker mm-hmm. should not carry weaponry. That makes sense, yeah, sort of a non-violence kind of thing. But again, I guess we'd have to see what the quote is, at what stage of his life he was saying this. To, right. Because he was always experimenting with different, uh, different philosophies and everything. I know Tessa was like, in our interview, Tessa Dick, his widow, was saying, well, he just would, he wore religions like clothing. He would wear something really like it and then discard it. And he'd been fascinated. <clears throat> I would argue, though, I think his Gnosticism was more than just a fad because, yeah, he was interested in talking to uh, Bishop Pike. There is a lot of uh, evidence out there or reports that he was very much into Carl Jung. And I think he'd actually gotten therapy with a union or somebody with some union therapy. So he knew about Gnosticism, but his experiences were so Gnostic that I don't think it was a fad. And it really, I mean, in 74 and by 77, 78, he is pumping out Gnostic material. He's writing a lot about it in his exegesis. So I think it wouldn't, it really wasn't a fad. It really was a game changing uh, experience I wrote on Damascus for Phil but of course we'll never know because he passed away in 1982 but I mean even in the exegesis he's talking about I am into Gnosticism and I'm not happy about it because once you have Gnosis it's like you start seeing the as Joseph Campbell you see the world as a wasteland you see the darkness so so intensely in the decadence of the universe and the suffering of human beings Buddhism is also that way too it really doesn't let go of suffering or the concept of suffering and let you get away with it. So I don't think he would have uh, changed anything. What do you think? I definitely agree with you on that. Well, good, good, good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The next thing that I have written down is another quote from Vallis, um, and one that kind of loops back around and goes in a weird direction. So uh, it's the quote from his dream, uh, to walk towards the dawn, you must put your slippers on. And then in the commentaries that he has on that dream, he supposes that Sophia is going to come back as one of the warrior women. Mm, and I that's can't... That's an interesting one. Yeah, and I can't help but see that as anything other than Inanna, given that she is, among other things, a goddess of war, and is often called on for related things by the ancient Sumerians. And, uh, interestingly enough, the copy of the stories of Inanna, which was, like, the first easily available publication of her stuff that I'm aware of was published the same year as Vallis. And I can't help but think that that's not a coincidence. (laughs) No, no, that's, it's the same reason the Nag Hammadi popped out of the sand uh, the same year that the, that uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima were bombed. It was, we were at the brink and something, something bright needed to come out to the world. I say, and I'm waxing poetic, but I think you're right. And, that's interesting, yeah. I mean, Inanna is such a fascinating goddess. She's truly a savior goddess. I think she is crucified in some of the texts yep. at one point. So she's definitely a uh, she's pre-Christian, a pre-Christian Christ figure. 
Yeah. And uh, the seven veils, I always think of Mary Magdalene and the seven demons. I think there's a strong parallel there. And she, yeah, she's definitely a proto-Sophia. She goes down into the darkness like Sophia. I mean, the other thing I could think of is uh, in the Gnostic text, they talk about Akamoth, which is the lower Sophia. She's sort of seen as the dark phoenix, Sophia, if you would. And she is, and so I would say she's probably, uh, Akamoth is sort of a more worldly, worldly, uh, maybe antagonistic type of uh of wisdom that is incarnated in this world so maybe that's why that's what i'm seeing as a connection and inanna has her dark sister reshkigal in right. the underworld exactly yes her own akamoth or shadow self and all that so yeah i think uh we're drawing from the same well yeah and she is the one who slain inanna and hung her on that hook <laughs> yes uh-huh what was the reason? I can't even... I thought, didn't Nana go down to rescue her? No, um, when she went down, she claimed she was there to attend the funeral for her sister, Ereshkigal's husband, who had been slain earlier in the Epic of Gilgamesh by, oh. well, none other than Gilgamesh. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that Gilgamesh always making a mess of things. And, uh, then once she gets down into the underworld, she rushes at... Ereshkigal presumably to attack her for some reason and uh, is then killed essentially for hubris um, but it never really mm -hmm. makes clear exactly what's going on there um, only that she's judged guilty of some crime and is then sentenced to death and hangs on a hook for it as a corpse um, my reading of it is kind of that it's a bit of a zen thing a die to yourself to be reborn kind of uh you know, die to your, you know, uh -huh. words are not coming to my brain. <laughs> right, right. We're doing, yeah, we're dealing with a lot of split personality and shadow self there. It's not yeah. meant to make sense. And I think with the Babylonians and Sumerians, a lot of these myths correspond to the stars. So sometimes if you can get the, the story up in the stars, then it makes more sense because it's the passage of time and the, the, the movement of the zodiac and all that. So sometimes it's just a, a strong sort of a theater of the stars written in human form. So that's another way you always have to see it. But uh, <clears throat> that's so hard because, uh, I mean, like uh, John Lunwall's great book, uh, I think uh, Myth Cosmos and Mythos, really breaks down the Babylonian myths with the stars and the Hercules with the stars. Obviously, Acharya S. did a ton of work on that. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we found some of Inanna's stuff on her website. But uh, unfortunately, we don't do that as much anymore. I mean, we've forgotten to look at the stars here in the West because there are no stars. There's too much fog and junk out in the sky. But uh, when you see the stars, it, uh, you start, I think, and you read these texts and you can do a little astronomy, it really opens up visions in your head. It's funny you mention that because I've actually mapped out the Babylonian star charts on my computer so I can oh, wow. watch them in real time. So, uh, yeah, and Inanna corresponds game. to the planet Venus. So definitely oh. when Venus goes down under the horizon into the underworld, <laughs> that's very much ties into all that. Yeah, and, and of course Jesus corresponds to Venus and obviously Aphrodite. So, yeah, we have these... Uh, these dying rising godmen that go down into uh, yeah they go into the underworld and then come up or they herald the sun the other uh, the solar logos 
Yep, and Inanna is considered the the sister of Utu, which is the god of the sun in the Mesopotamian stories. Oh. So it all links back. Yes, it does. Once you start doing this work, it's just fascinating. And as you're connecting the dots, you'll start, no- I'm sure you agree, you start noticing archetypal images coming out of you and stories coming out of you, and it really opens uh, the old, ye old third eye a bit more. Definitely. Um, uh, I don't know if he talks about it more of the exegesis, because I haven't read it yet, but uh, Philip K. Dick definitely in Vallis speaks briefly of a void experience, but he doesn't really go into too much detail on it. Um, Hmm. Do you know any more about that story? No, I I don't. Uh, I mean, I've read Vallis many times, but maybe it was one of those things that didn't really speak to me, or I just didn't bother with it, but... uh, yeah, next time I always like to thumb through the exegesis, but it's such a huge book, and uh, sort of uh, next time if I run into it, then I'll be able to connect more dots for you. Okay, because I've definitely been in the void, and my experience was probably very different than anyone else's. <laughs> the void, what, all blackness? All complete Liquid. destitution? Liquid blackness and complete <laughs> lack of body, um... It was actually following a meditation. I I was at my friend's house, and her and one of my other friends were on their computers playing games, and I had forgotten my laptop, and I was had nothing else to do, so I decided to lay down and meditate. And next thing I knew, I was disembodied, floating in liquid darkness. That's the only way I can describe it. It was like, it was beyond just like nighttime or even just, being completely cut off from light it was like like the darkness was of like a physical liquid thing around you and then i f- saw a giant what i can only describe as a dragon <laughs> it mm. was white and she identified herself as goddess tiamat from mm. the mesopotamian right. and then next thing i knew i was bouncing into different bodies like which I took to understand as like different possible lives and at one point like I come out of it and I have to go to the bathroom really bad and I go into the bathroom and I don't know if I've mentioned it before but I'm trans and mm-hmm. one of the things that goes along with being trans is unfortunately gender dysphoria which means an intense and sometimes physically painful feeling of just wrongness in one's own body and I Mm. felt the worst dysphoria I had ever felt in my entire life and then I went back and laid back down because I didn't know what else to do and then I I immediately fell back into the experience and and went into a couple more different lives I don't remember any of them very vividly because there it was all just like a couple moments of such things and then Tiamat asked me to choose and initially I was going to choose a different life but then I remembered all the people that care about me and who would miss me if I was gone and I went Uh ahead and chose to come back and I woke up and my head was like scrambled around I couldn't I couldn't even like put together what had happened to me or figure out it like took me a few minutes to even sort out the chronology of what had happened and uh, in that moment I felt like I understood everything and then, of course, wow. it faded as time went on. Wow. 
Wow, right. you've got some great visions <clears throat> and challenges too, but I guess they go hand in hand. It's uh, those moments of displacement or that feeling of displacement and being in the wrong place or time and all that. I'm sure that uh, opens up vistas. And it's interesting about the the water. I mean, <clears throat> I think uh, obviously the Old Testament in Genesis, God is separating the waters or the darkness, waters above, waters below. In the Gnostic text, like the uh, secret book of John and so forth, it always talks about when consciousness, the monad, is emanating. There's a watery light and a watery feeling all over. And that's interesting, too. Uh, well, the motif, the symbols are powerful. They are transcendental. They are universal. But even in the new Westworld show, <clears throat> they sort of change things where at the beginning, the robots are, are falling. At the beginning, the robots are being dipped in this watery substance and the theme of drowning or being in of these these robots that are fighting the archons which is humanity in the show they're they're drowning in water in these uh, in these visionary states and uh, possible futures so there is something yeah there is something to a lot of again we're connecting a lot of dots and <laughs> back back and forth in time through different gnostic texts and ideas yeah and it's it's interesting that you mentioned like the separation of waters because also kind of corresponds to the darkness and the light because while liquid darkness felt very much like the pure essence of darkness i could still mm -hmm. see like when the when tiamat approached me she was as clear as day so it's um, it was almost like the darkness and the light were one <laughs> which was wow. the weirdest thing i don't know how to explain it better than that and what does she look like like Honestly, the best description I have is, uh, have you seen the movie, um, oh, I can't think of it now, uh, A Never-Ending Story. Yeah, of course. Uh, Falcor. Oh, yeah? Wow. I only saw, like, her head and, like, part of her shoulder, because she was, like, to the right of me, and I couldn't, like, turn, um, but she looked like Falcor, but with instead of fur scales but that same color mm. of whiteness that same kind of shape mm, wow and i guess this is a uh, pre-killed from pre-slaughtered by marduk tiamat huh? <laughs> um i mean i only ever saw her head so who knows <laughs> i mean yeah. marduk was supposed to have like cut her into pieces so mm. who knows um but she was definitely, and she was massive, like, the pupil of her eye was as big as my, well, I didn't really have a body, but how big I presumed my body would have been. <laughs> <laughs> it was well, cool. a very strange experience, and one that I still haven't quite completely come to terms with. <laughs> I can imagine, wow. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the next thing I have written down is uh, something that I thought was just kind of amusing, but also somewhat humbling in a sort of strange way. And that was the quote that he had in Val. The Virgin Mary had, or it was in the second book, I think. Uh, the Virgin Mary had stretch marks. <laughs> mm, yeah. <laughs> I guess that's bringing it down to earth. I mean, I think it was. What did August, I think it was Augustine who said Jesus was born between urine and feces like the rest of us, basically trying to uh, put uh, 
put us stressing about Jesus being another human, at least at the very beginning, with the same challenges, bodily challenges that humans have. So I think that's uh, definitely Phil playing around. I'm sure. I don't. I mean, it's odd because it's it's interesting because later in the when you have the transfiguration of Timothy Archer, he'd been talking to Bishop Pike, and he became very interested in the John Allegro. Uh, theory that Jesus was nothing was not historical. He was just sort of a a magic mushroom, or the effects of a ma- magic mushroom on the first century Jews that gave him visions about this uh, celestial being called Christ. So I'm going to assume he was being tongue in cheek and sort of playing with that Augustinian idea to stress that Jesus was as carnal or was brought into the same uh, temporary gritty world all of us come into. Yeah, that's that's great. <laughs> um, the next thing I had written down was another quote. When has the government ever told anyone the truth? Oh my God! Yeah, that's. I mean, we don't even have to go there. That's like <laughs> everybody knows that. I mean, he wrote it in the seventies, and I think people. Yeah, I mean, the hippies and everybody don't trust the government, dude. But I think. <laughs> In 2018, that is so obvious. I don't think we, uh, I don't know anybody who would disagree with that. <laughs> if you yeah. do, you really have, uh, you must be, you really have, are choking on that blue pill because, I mean, we know it's um, it's almost like a matter of policy for the government and politicians to lie. It's just, it is what it is. <laughs> blue pills with a side of cyanide. <laughs> right, or... <laughs> or <clears throat> what's those uh, in Men in Black? Those neuralizers. They make you forget everything. They want you to forget everything as soon as they do something bad. Like, oh, we'll create another distraction, or we'll worry about something like a, a comedian on a Saturday, or what Kanye West says. You know, don't look at the real issues going on over here. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so. uh Something that I found interesting, and it's more of a footnote than anything else, was the very next book I started reading after I, I finished the Vallis trilogy was Chaos Protocols by Gordon Ooh. White. And within the introduction, he mentions Philip K. Dick and Vallis. I can't <laughs> help but feel like that was like a perfect segue <laughs> from yeah, no what kidding. I was just reading. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the idea of the end never ended. I mean, th- that little phrase is, carries so much power. So many different dimensions can be used in so many different ways. Uh, you know, levels, metaphysical, psychological. I mean, and that, and then of course, Val. I mean, there's so many themes in Vallis and Philip K. Dick that uh, any occultist or a real activist can really employ to get your ideas across. So good for Gordon. I mean, it's a great book. I read it too. I love the Chaos Protocols, but it's it's been a few years since I've read it. Yeah, um, and on that note, I'm going to take that one a step further. Babylon never fell. Oh, I like that one too. In fact, that could be another one. That could be in your exegesis because, yeah, why? I mean, Babylon still fascinates the world. I mean, from. Uh, the book of revelation the horde of babylon is a some sort of archetypal image of a very powerful oppressive yet uh, seductive place it's amazing how babylon and then of course the the culture itself was very rich 
very deep and uh, very advanced. So it is fascinating. I mean, unfortunately, I mean, as historically, you would just say, yeah, but by the second, first, second, third century, Babylon was like Detroit. You know what I mean? It was just, a, it was a has-been city. Yeah. And then the next thing I have is a question. Do you think Yaldabaoth is is lonely? I would assume so. I mean, that's what happens when you're arrogant. That's what happens when you're uh, when you are uh, a tyrant in a centralized system. You become isolated, insulated, and uh, you become very lonely and disattached. I mean, obviously, in the Gnostic texts, doesn't exactly treat his archons well. I think uh, what Einar Thomason said that if you really look at the text, all the archons are not even separate beings. They're aspects of Yaldabaoth for him to play with. So he might be even more lonelier than you might think. And of course, ultimately, he is separated from the eternal realm. He's separated from the world, uh, from the ground of being. He's separated from uh, the place of true potential, the idealized world of goodness and thought. So no matter how much he creates and manufactures and bullies his uh, creations and so forth, he's, uh, he's, gonna, he's going to be lonely. I mean, uh, from a psychological uh, point of view, it's, that's, that's our egos right there. We do, many of us, all of us do that in our lives. We become our demiurges. We become puffed up. We create these manufactured worlds and try to control others into our manufactured worlds. And it doesn't work out very well. There's rebellion. There's resentment against us. We resent them back. And at the at the end of the day, we are very lonely uh, creator gods. That was brilliant. <laughs> I don't really think I, just, I can add anything to that. Well, yeah. I wish it was brilliant. It's more like out of experience when my ego has gotten too big in life, unfortunately. Which happens and the lessons I've had to learn from it. and. So, I mean, that's the, <clears throat> that's the idea of why Gnosticism works so well. I mean, Jung saw it too. It works very well on a psychological um, aspect. I mean, the demiurge is our ego, our puffed up, arrogant ego when it gets too big. And of course, we all have a fallen reason, a fallen wisdom, our own uh, Jesus and Sophia that we must... Uh, sort of rescue and bring up to a higher state. I mean, uh, the I think Stephen Davis said uh, very brilliantly that uh, to the Gnostics, the Savior was not a celestial being, but a capacity of the mind. Jesus coming into the world is actually our insights coming from within and trying to get out. So, and of course, you can through the archons and their different aspects and other characters of the Bible, just so you can do other in other mythologies. I mean, I'm... Uh, I was a. Uh, I just recently watched a Jesus Christ Superstar live, first time in my life. I've seen the various movies, and I was really stricken <clears throat> that obviously Jesus Christ Superstar. Have you watched it, Vanessa? I haven't yet. No. Mm. Oh well, if you get a chance, uh, watch one of the versions. They're all very good. But uh, it was not. It's not Gnostic except for the idea that Jesus and Judas are so intertwined. They're almost like, uh, well, like uh, Inanna and her dark sister or something like that. There are two sides of the co coin, and one might become, one might be higher, one 
might be lower, lower but they're essential to each other, symbiotic. And um, obviously, uh, Nikola Kazanskowski, I hope I'm saying it right, did it in uh, The Last Temptation of Christ, where Judas is sort of elevated. But in uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, they really are almost one and the same. They're inseparable. They need each other, even if they have to go through this kind of dark drama of betrayal and so forth. But that goes right back to the Gnostics, because obviously in the Gospel of Thomas, you've got Judas Thomas. You've got the Gospel of Judas, where Jesus and Judas are both kind of sort of the same being uh, in different aspects. And of course, this goes back to Dick and how he likes to split himself up in characters. He was fascinated with the whole Damon, Adelon, two halves or divine twin of them of the Manichaeans. But yeah, Gnostic texts, you've got Judas and Jesus, you see them in different texts. And again, they're almost like the same being, but uh, separated. I mean, that was, uh, it took me a while when I read Ballad, and I might have missed it, but it took me a little bit to realize that Philip K. Dick and Horse Lover Fat were the same person. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and the last question is a bit long, I admit, but I think it's also the most important and certainly one that's been on my mind a lot lately. And mm. it is... In a world where good things have a tendency to slowly toxicify and be ar become archonic, where people can somehow turn love your neighbor as yourself, care for the sick and needy, <coughs> don't lie, and don't do what you hate, and to bomb them, take away their health care, don't help them, they'll just spend it on drugs, it's okay to lie <laughs> as long as he hates the same people we do, All and right. absolutely do what you hate, and don't you dare complain, how can we find hope in a Gnostic world? Uh, well, I think I like to say where hope dies, imagination must live. We always need to be recreating and keeping ourselves fresh by renewing these ancient myths, just like you and I have been doing Babylon and Samaria and the ancient Gnostics. So I know it sounds kind of weird, but we always got to keep an eye on the past and the richness and the culture of the past. And so we always got, yeah, we always got to be in a form of renewal. If we stay static and we get centralized, that's when we're dead. I mean, what's the old saying? Um, I forgot who said it, but any movement starts out as an ideal, becomes a business, and then ends up as a racket. And this could be <laughs> your own faith. This could be your own church. This could be a political movement you join. It doesn't matter what it is. I mean it's probably going to happen. Like you said, there's going to be some, it's going to get, it's going to calcify. There's going to be some rot starting to appear. So it's always good to be moving. And we were talking about sort of the cafeteria approach and maybe that's the way to go. Always be drawing, always be tweaking, always be adjusting. I mean, I always liked John Lennon because he also felt like he would jump into a movement and then he'd jump out because, and go into something else. And I think he knew, that that's what exactly was going to happen. And we, we talked about Philip K. Dick, how we would wear different religions and discard them because uh, he probably knew that things are going to get old and it's time to renew ourselves, <laughs> to get that butterfly out of the caterpillar. So I think that's, I really think that's the way of, of doing it. Just keep renewing, <clears throat> keep changing things. And I mean, the Gnostic way is always going to be syncretic. It's always going to be uh, moving along with a lot of moving parts knowing you're always going to be in the crosshairs of another movement or another bigger institution. So keep moving, keep nimble, and keep yourself young. So I think that's, that's the solution. Never settle, because this world is always changing. Absolutely. That's great. 
<laughs> a little whiz, a little Sophie on my part. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for being on my podcast. Oh, I definitely I conversation. It. Well, thanks for having me on, and uh, good luck with everything. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Butterflies and Incantations. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and follow me on social media. This is Vanessa, reminding you that magic is everywhere. You only have to know where to look. And if you feel compelled, I encourage you to support me on Patreon and help make this podcast possible.